The scripture for today comes from Mark 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. They brought him to a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers to his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looked up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The word of God for the people of God. As we travel with Jesus in the sermon series, last week we were in Tyre and we talked about the Syrophoenician woman and that Jesus healed her, her daughter. And, and, then, and then in today's reading, we hear that, that Jesus traveled from the coastal city of Tyre up, to, up north to the coastal city of Sidon. And, uh, and, and, and I, I just want to point out, that's a long way from home. And when he gets up to Sidon, if you read the Bible with your maps, and then he traveled back over to the Galilee region, to the Decapolis area. And uh, it, it, Sidon is almost the same as far north as Damascus, Syria, which was the most northern of the Decapolis cities. And, and so did Jesus go to Damascus? We don't know, but he went to the Decapolis area and, and around the Sea of Galilee. So, so he's, uh, you know, he, he, one of the cities that I suspect that he might have gone to, I could imagine if he came back from Sidon over to Capernaum, which was kind of a home base for him, he could take a boat and travel across the Sea of Galilee to one of the ports, called, which is the port of Hippos, Hippos Susita, and, and walk up the, 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 the hill there. We think that probably he did. Um, go up to Hippos, and that's uh, a really uh, a, a Decapolis city that's really close to Tiberias and the and the sea and the and connected to to where Jesus. We know he did some miracles. Hippos, as all Greek cities, were to have a city, you had to have water and you had to have a road. They didn't have good water. But it, it's on the top of this mountain. It's a diamond-shaped area. It's kind of flat on top of this hill. And it's, a, it's like a 1,000 feet above the Sea of Galilee. So it would have a great view. You have a great view if you walk up there. And uh, they, they didn't have good water, so they built this wonderful system to, to bring rainwater and an aqueduct to them. And they stored it in cisterns, and they also stored their rainwater there. It's because of the rain issue and the water issue that its population was a bit limited. 
But they, um, in about 200 B.C., they, 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 they controlled their whole area around him, this city. Hippos means horse in, in Greek. I know, this is really interesting to you. Aren't, aren't you excited to know this um, about hippos? It's interesting to me that, um, that, that they had a middle-class, you know, there's neighborhoods there that were middle-class and then wealthy, and it was a typical Greek city. It was big enough and wealthy enough to, to, to have a theater, uh, a market area called the Stoa. Um, it had a shrine to the emperor. It had a temple to the Greek gods, um, civic meeting area, just a typical Greek city. They, they were wealthy enough that they had Egyptian columns that were red in color brought to this area and carried up the mountain. So, and the, so the, the main street was lined with these red columns. It's a very interesting place. So I can see that, that Jesus probably came across the, the Sea of Galilee and, and landed at the port and walked up this zigzaggy, thousand foot trail up to the city with his um, with his disciples I've hiked up that zigzag trail several times and uh, and gone to this this site this archaeological site it's a national park site now for the Israelis it's not quite open to the public but if you walk up that zigzag trail you can go and explore, which which I've done. And I, I've in one of the places, some of y'all know Bobby Green. I went there first with Bobby and Lorna Green, the, the Myers know them. And, uh, and, and, and there's a throwaway pile. It was kind of like a trash pile. And uh, the so people who live there, when you broke your pottery, what do you do with it? Well, you just send it to the trash pile. The pile. And, and so archaeologists have gone through a lot of the ruins and the, the trash pile. And um, what they couldn't put together, they, they left there. And so people like me could just pick it up and put it in my backpack and then walk back down the mountain with it. And so I wanted to share some of those things with you today. This is a, a piece of pottery. That, that they tried to put together. This probably held some oil or something, um, or, or some dry goods. Notice it doesn't have any, any, any handles on it, so it probably wasn't used to carry stuff. Landon is going to come, and, and I'm just going to pass these things around so y'all can, um, um, you can look at them, so you can pass that around. And you'll, you'll notice the archaeologists have numbered the pieces when they tried to put things together. A lot of the pottery, um, with there's a lot of handles there. And you've, I know you've seen pictures where the pots would have handles and they would put this on either side of the, the, the pot and they would put ropes through the handles and they would put the, have a, the people would have a stick and then they would put a, a, a jar on each side. So you've probably seen pictures of that. Terry, there you go. You want to hand out these handles? Here's some more handles. Here, just give those around. Pass those around to different sections. You can kind of see the handles that would be carrying the pot. They had a, they, Hippos was such an important place. They were allowed to, to make their own coins. Um, and the coins had the had a horse on it because hippos means horse, and that's how that that was their money. 
And when we were there, my wife, had, she'd always wanted to find a Roman coin or some kind of coin, and we found one. So, so this is just a little Roman coin. You'll, you'll, just, you'll see how tiny it is. It's just kind of amazing. Terry's going to pass that around. And when you finish passing those around after the service, just bring them up to the altar. Now, you, you, sometimes you think that, how did people live? How was their floors like? And this is a part of a floor. Um, I could have brought a lot more floor, but it's very heavy, and I was with a backpack. So you're just not going to do that. But their floors were made out of little bitty, little bitty squares, little bitty square stones that, that stonemasons would have made. And then they just kind of put them together, and they're really kind of cool. So it, you could, it, once you look at this floor, you'll know you could just be sweeping that floor and keeping it clean. It's pretty amazing. So, so G, and, and also another thing that, that surprised me was how the pottery is decorated. You know, there's a, I mentioned the red columns are really cool, but also just the pots themselves were, were painted and decorated with really cool colors. And uh, it, it just, for me, seeing the, seeing the ruins and the, and the pottery and everything just kind of brought it to life. Here, you want to pass the, some more pieces around. So Jesus takes his disciples, probably goes up this zigzaggy trail, and, and it's there that, um, that he meets this deaf man and mute man. He can't, he can't speak, he can't hear, and he heals him. He takes him aside privately and heals him. And as I think about um, this, this, this healing story, I, I think about how isolated this man must have felt. You know, when you're, I, I know as I, in my ministry, I've, I've worked with deaf people and a little bit and people that, that can't speak and they, and they they feel a little isolated. And, and I've known many people who, as they got older, became hard of hearing Anybody here know of anybody that can't hear as well as they used to? Yes. And, and, and sometimes when you're hard of hearing, you just isolate yourself even more because you just don't know what's going on. You can't hear it. It really makes you feel bad and, and you're embarrassed. And I, I started thinking about our culture and how we, we are isolated. Since World War II, much has been written about how how even though we have interstates and we have TVs and we live in our own houses, we're becoming more and more isolated in our culture. We don't have um, many, as many meaningful relationships or, and know our neighbors as we did before. It, some people say that our, our society has been unraveling as we, becoming, as we become so isolated with cable TV or the World Wide Web. Um, some of us remember that we used to visit on front porches. You know, your neighbors, used, you know, our, we bought a house in Huntsville and uh, we re did a remodel on it a few years ago. And you know what we did? We added a front porch. So we can, and I, and I added a porch swing so we can sit there and yell at the neighbors when they walk by. A lot of, our, we live on a two mile loop that people walk every day. And so we're able to sit there and yell at them when they go by and, and, and that's kind of fun. So, so front porches used to be a time where you visit with, with, with your neighbors, but we don't do that anyway. We're a bit more 
we're, we're connected to our screens, but we have trouble establishing meaningful, deep relationships and interacting with people, especially if we don't agree with them about one thing or another. We've been, we've been painfully remembering this week the 9-11, 20-year anniversary. And I, I remember talking to some friends of mine who lived in New York City, and they said, you know, one thing that, that, that came as a result of 9-11 was we got to know our neighbors. We've lived here for 20 years in the same apartment building and never met our neighbor. I mean, we'd see them, but we didn't know them. But they started having potlucks and get-togethers, and that, it, it really transformed their relationships. I, I know that maybe that happened with, with you as well. I bet everybody this week has been remembering where you were at that time. Um, in times of crisis, we move out of our isolation. Our family was living in Lithuania um, when, when 9-11 occurred, which is a very interesting place to be. Um, and and uh, several days before that, probably a week and then four days and three days, we were getting emails. The United Methodist Church um, has, has, for missionaries, for the Board of Global Ministries, they have a security system that they pay for. So they, they really try to protect the missionaries, which we all appreciated. Um, and I was getting emails saying, Americans, something is going to happen. Be careful. Don't gather with other Americans. Don't go to the embassy. Something's going to happen this week. That's what, so we were getting these emails. It was very interesting. And so we called the only other American that was living in our city, who was a Baptist missionary. And we said, well, we can't get together with you because, you know, we're, we're, you know, anyway, we made fun of it because, you know, there was no Americans around us. Um, but, but we knew something was going to happen. And then we didn't know what, of course. Our friend in Afghanistan, the Methodist Church had some missionaries in Afghanistan. And Sue was one of our good friends. And, and the, the, the day before 9-11, or two days before 9-11, just I can't remember which, the Taliban came and they, they said to her, Sue, we, we need you to leave the country. You've not done anything wrong, but we want to protect you. And so very respectfully, they, they allowed her and they, and they took her um, outside the country so she could go stay at a hotel outside the country. They say, we don't know what's going to happen, but we think something may happen. So the Taliban protected our friend Sue um, before 9-11. And then, um, of course, she never got to go back because of uh, the, the, the tension and the conflict. But she, she really appreciated how respectfully she was treated. Uh, but an interesting thing happened in Lithuania. Um, you know, the Soviets had, had invaded Afghanistan before. And we were considered spies. People, you know, they knew we were foreigners from America. Why in the world would we be there if we weren't spies? So everybody thought we were spies. And, and they didn't, a lot of times they didn't want to have anything to do with us. But after 9-11, these old men that had served in the Soviet army in Afghanistan, they would, they would say, come here, we want to talk to you. You know, before they had ignored me, um, but they said, we want to talk to you. We're so sorry what happened to your country. 
We're so sorry about what happened in New York. But we want to tell you, don't go to Afghanistan. Those, it's not a good place. And they would tell me all the reasons why we needed to stay away from Afghanistan. And I, and I said, thank you, as if I had any authority about anything. But um, it was very interesting. So, so as, as isolated as we were in that place, they reached out to us even in this foreign place. And there was healing. As they told their stories of going to Afghanistan as, a as Russian soldiers, Soviet soldiers, there was, it was healing for them to tell those stories to me, this American missionary. And, and our relationship um, it grew. It was a very strange and bizarre time for everybody around the world. My in-laws were in Moscow at the time. And, and what really surprised them was the amount of flowers and tributes that came to the embassy, the U.S. embassy. They, they took pictures and sent us. They said, we, you won't believe the, the, the flowers that, that are coming, this regular Russian people coming out to show their love and support for the United States. And the same occurred in Lithuania. There were lots of tributes, and people were nice to us, whereas before they hadn't cared. I got stopped by the police all the time. It was just a normal thing. But after 9-11, the next time I got stopped by the police, we found out I was American, which I think he knew. Um, he said, okay, no, you don't have to give me money. I never paid a ticket, by the way. I always just bribed the policeman. That's why they stopped me. But... <laughs> It's just part of it, but you know. But but after 9/11, they let me slide for a, for a, a time or two. Very very strange. So so even through through tragedy, we can have healing and reconciliation as we as we listen to each other and listen to each other's story. One of the things that, that isolation does for us, it it we, it, it kind of limits our compassion. Limits our compassion. But once we, we, we know each other and talk to each other and hear each other's stories, we become more compassionate for one another. This, this week in the upper room, which I, I know many of you read the upper room every day, there was a story about a, a, a woman who grew up in the South and in a segregated South, and she had a she thought segregation was the way to go. She was a segregationist just because she hadn't thought about it. She had never met a black person. And then, um, then she had a health crisis. And, and some African-American women started taking care of her. That was the first time she'd ever really talked to African-American women, black people. And after that point, it transformed her attitude. And she said in the, in the upper room devotional, she said, I... I, I was transformed after that, and I, I was I decided segregation's not a good thing, and so it, it changed her. You know, once we get in contact with people and get to know them and get to know their stories, it changes a lot of things. This has happened to me over and over again through the years. You know, a few years ago when Black Lives Matter was was a big thing, I guess it still is, but. Um, the people in our community, in our neighborhood, in our church said, let's just kind of, let's just talk about this. Can we just kind of talk? And so several of us gathered on a Sunday afternoon and, and a young man in our church named Justin, and he, he, he was African-American. He sang in our choir. He was, he's a great young man. 
And uh, he, he said, he shared how he had been stalked by the police and harassed. And, and so we listened to that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about him and, and his story. But through his, his telling it, it was healing for him. And a, and a, and a woman who was, uh, he, she, I guess she looked Hispanic. She, she, she spoke Spanish. Um, her, her parents were missionaries, actually. Um, so she kind of grew up in the mission field. But uh, she, she shared an experience how she had just been shopping at Walmart and this man came up to her with hatred in his eyes. And he said, why don't you go back home where you came from? We don't want you here. And she was just, she was shocked. You know, she looked Hispanic. And um, she said, I came from Texas, sir. You know, she, she, you know she's from Texas. Uh, she, she was so hurt you know, and, and just shocked and you know, I, so, so we just shared stories, and as, as people shared their stories, there was healing. You know, reconciliation comes when we share, and we really listen with deep hearts, and it helps us to become compassionate. Um, sharing helps us be compassionate. I wonder what got into Jesus that made him go to this Greek city and, and take the disciples so that they could hear hopefully hear the stories of one another. Um, so that's what I think probably happened. Um, Jesus took his disciples up to this Greek city. They listened. They got to know each other. It's one thing to be enemies um, because of geography, but it's once you know people and know their stories and know something about them, it, it's, 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 it's hard to, 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 to call them as enemies. Hipposacita was was up on top of the hill, and many people say this could have been who Jesus was talking about when he said, a light set on a hill, because it's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. But Hippus also had enemies, the Tiberius across the Sea of Galilee. They went to war. You know, they were kind of warring people. But Jesus was kind of this bridge builder to bring the Hebrews and the Greeks together in that place. And it must have, must have taken because there was a there was a Christian church that developed slowly over the years in Hipposacita. And when the, 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 the city was destroyed in 749, as many of the cities there around the Sea of Galilee, by a big earthquake, and it just kind of destroyed the city, and they, they never rebuilt it. But when the archaeologists started doing their, their dig in 1999, not that long ago, they uncovered this, this Christian church, and on the mosaic floor of the church was the, par was the story of the feeding of the 5,000. There was in the, the, the artwork in the mosaic, is, is, there's a little basket with the five loaves and two fish. So that was kind of the, the, the theme of that church, perhaps. It's, and it wasn't a small church. So the Christian church that Jesus went up to Hippos to talk about it, it, it grew and grew and grew in that community. Lots can happen when we really go out of our way to listen to the stories of our neighbors, especially to, to people that are different. I, I have to confess to you, when I left Alabama to go to seminary, I, just, I chose to go to Duke, and, and I thought I was going up north. 
I, I was so small-minded, you know. I hadn't been around too much. I was going up north to North Carolina, and uh, much from, and, and of course that's hilarious to everyone because you know better. But I didn't know better, and I went up to Duke, and and within my first couple of years, I, I may have shared some of this before, but my mom got cancer. She had breast cancer, and then my dad suddenly died at just uh, the day after her first chemo. And he had had some heart issues. And so I, I was kind of lost for a while, you know. I was kind of homesick. And um, I worshipped at Duke Chapel with s several thousand of my friends. And, um, and, and I noticed that, that the, next, the preacher the next week, they, they always had interesting speakers. You know, you have a chaplain that speaks, a minister to the university. But they were always invited guest pre preachers in. And this next Sunday was going to be... Uh, one of the religion professors I'd never heard of, named his name was Dr. C. Eric Lincoln. And, and in the little bio said, he's from Athens, Alabama. I said, what? An Alabama guy? I, my family's from Athens, Alabama. You walk down streets and you yell out, Clem, and somebody's going to raise their hand because there's a lot of Clems in Athens, Alabama. And my, uh, anyway, so I said, well, I, I want to go meet this professor here from Athens, Alabama. And Duke Chapel is this huge, big cathedral. I mean, it's big stained glass, and it's just long. It's just, and the, and the, pre, the pulpits are up high, and behind, you kind of walk up steps. So I had no idea who the preacher was or what they looked like because they were hiding back there behind the pulpits. Maybe that's a good thing to protect preachers. But anyway, it's back there by the choir. And so when it came time for him to, to preach, I, I, I confess, I'm so sorry, but I, I was really surprised when this old black man got up there. I, and I thought, oh, he's a black, okay. You know, I, I'm sorry, that, but that, that's just, I was shocked. I didn't know. And so then he, he gave a sermon. It was, it was really challenging and meaningful to me. And after, after church, you know, the choir and the preachers all processed out and stood in the little narthex areas for the joy at line where people went by and shook their hands and said, joy at preacher. And so I, I said, well, I want to meet this man from Athens. So I, 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 I said, you know, my family's from Athens. And he looked at me and he said, what's your name? So I told him my name and he said, Clem, I want you to come to my office this week. I said, Okay, um, okay, uh, okay. And I was kind of scared to death, you know, I, I, and I thought it was so strange, you know. That, that, but but I, I, I did a little research, and I found out that he had written a lot of books and, you know, Black Church in America and a book about Malcolm X and, you know, anyway, just a pretty important person. I found out that he was the first African-American professor at Harvard. And, you know, and anyway, just a pretty, pretty important person. So I was kind of intimidated to go to meet him. And, and so I found his office and he had his own secretary, which is kind of unusual for a faculty person. <laughs> but um, so she, she let me go in to meet him. And so we sat down and talked and he said, well, tell me about your life. And so I was telling him about my life a little bit and my family had the farm in Athens or near Athens. And anyway, and I told him about my mom and my dad had just died. And, and, and he listened and just telling it to somebody was healing for me. Then he told me about growing up in Athens, Alabama and how his, he was raised by his, his grandparents and his grandfather was sick and, 
and and they 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 just did farming you know to survive subsistence farming like most Alabamians years ago and they picked cotton and stuff and he said you know we always had our we always had an extra crop of cotton that we would pick and I said Christmas cotton because I knew about Christmas cotton you know you, you pick your cotton in the in the fall when it's ready and then what's not picked, you go back and pick later on, and that's your Christmas money. That's what my mama always called it. Got to get our Christmas cotton money. And so I said, I know about Christmas cotton. Not that I ever picked it, but I heard many stories about it. And so he said, well, we didn't have any medicine, and my granddaddy was sick. We didn't have any food. And, uh, and, and so I went to get some Christmas cotton we picked my grandmother and I we picked this cotton and I had a wheelbarrow and I put it in the wheelbarrow and I took it down to the cotton gin and at that time he told me the name of the the man who owned or ran the gin and he took it in there it was just he and the the owner and he and and he said what you got there boy and he said I've got some cotton sir and so he said well let's weigh it so he got it on the the scales and Eric Lincoln was good at math. And in Athens, there's an African-American school, school for African-Americans that had been started by some good white um, missionary folks, actually, from in Reconstruction. And so he, he was educated. He knew how to do math. And he knew on the board it said how much cotton was going for. And so he, he, he put that cotton on there and waited and in his mind he figured out how much money he should be getting for that cotton which was about two dollars and fifty cents or something like that and the and the guy got out a quarter and flipped it to him and said here boy take this that's for your cotton just a quarter and, and Eric is thinking I've got to get medicine for my granddad I got to get food this is our this is I need more than that and he said sir I think it sh it should be, and he gave the amount that it should be a dollar two fifty or whatever. And that boy, and the man who owned the the cotton gin, he went over to the to the door and he locked the door and he picked up a big two by four and he came back and just started beating the heck out of Eric. He was just like fourteen or fifteen years old, beating him, beating him, bloody, and he's on the ground. And the man said, the N-word, don't you ever do math behind a white man again. And Eric took his quarter and went home. And shortly after that, his his grandmother and teacher, they said, "We, you got to get out of here if you're going to survive. And they were able to find ways from a teacher at his school to send him up north towards Chicago to another school where he could finish and then he got his education did a lot of interesting things and so he's telling me these stories and about his life and what happened to him and he said and and Dale you we're family because whenever our my grandparents had a need there would always be a, a grocery bag of food on our porch and it was the Clems that took care of us I said, are you sure it's my family? <laughs> I kind of knew my family. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure. He said, yeah. It, it was the Clems. We're family. 
and we would go and work on their farm if they had a need and we, they'd come and help us. You know, we, we, we're together. And people in the South, we, we, we can, we, because we know each other, there's a better chance that we can be reconciled rather than up in Chicago, which he had been in, where people are so isolated in their neighborhoods. In Athens, Alabama, you knew each other, and there's that chance that you can be friends because you rely on each other and you help each other. And I started thinking, who would have thought that a, that a white kid from Alabama would be feeling so isolated up at, at, at Duke and find healing from an African-American professor. <laughs> Who would have thought that through telling our stories, we would both experience healing and reconciliation? But that's what happens when we have deep listening. I don't know what Jesus did with the disciples when he went up and for this intercultural dialogue, but they, they crossed a border. They visited, and a church was born. Healing occurred. I don't know if you're in need of healing today. Maybe there's some stories, some wounds that you carry. Maybe you feel isolated. Maybe you're home watching this worship service now, and you feel isolated because of the pandemic. Jesus is here, and he's ready to heal somebody. My prayer is that we can all reach out and listen and know God's healing touch. Let us pray. We all have experienced hurts and wounds, oh God. Many of us have felt misunderstood. And there's a lot of meanness in the world. Help us to be the kind of people that reach out and listen. To hear each other's stories. And through that healing that we will, through that listening, that we will know your healing grace and your love. Help us to be better people, oh God, better listeners, so that we can hear your voice speak to one another, through one another. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.